I'm Amber Tresca, and this is About IBD. I'm a medical writer and patient educator who lives with a J-pouch due to ulcerative colitis. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. Welcome to episode 131. My guest is Sari Grossman, a research scientist, Crohn's disease patient, and advocate for patients with chronic illness. Sari shares her experience with IBD, including her diagnosis at a young age, her symptoms, and the impact it all had on her life. She speaks openly about the physical and emotional challenges of living with chronic illness and how she has learned to cope with the ups and downs of her condition. Sari also discusses her work with the Crohn's and Colitis Student Initiative at the University of Michigan and the importance of a supportive community. She shares how the group provided her with a sense of belonging, comfort, and a wealth of resources, including access to IBD specialists and educational events. She also talks about the obstacles of starting a patient organization on campus and offers advice for those who are interested in doing the same. Finally, stick around for the end to hear our polarizing takes on New York pizza versus Detroit pizza. Sari, thank you so much for coming on about IBD. I'm really excited to meet you and speak with you today. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, of course. I want to begin with getting an introduction. So, Sari, would you tell me and our listeners a little bit about who you are? Yeah, so I'm Sari. I have Crohn's disease. I've had Crohn's disease for 14 years now. I'm from West Bloomfield, Michigan. I'm a double graduate from the University of Michigan. I just finished graduate school, so I'm in a little bit of a limbo period right now, but that's a a brief introduction of me. Right. Perfect. Thank you so much. So yes, you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease when you were quite young. I'm wondering though, do you have any memories of that time? Or if you don't have any memories, what did people tell you about that process of your symptoms and then getting a diagnosis? I don't have a ton of memories. My symptoms started at 10 years old and I was diagnosed by 11 years old. It was about an eight to 12 month turnaround, which is extremely fast for most IBD patients. But because IBD runs in my family, it was pretty likely what I had. And so because I was young and because it was a short period of time, I don't have a ton of memories. I do have some memories being a child where I was embarrassed by my symptoms because I feel like those memories really stick out, especially when you're young. Mm -hmm. And I have a few memories of being quite sick. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I don't really remember being worried or any mental anguish surrounding it because I was young. And I just really remember like the actual symptoms mostly. Right. What what were the symptoms? Because as you told me earlier, they're a little bit different than what people tend to think of when they think of Crohn's disease. So what were you dealing with at that time? Yeah. So I pretty much never had the classic bathroom issues, which is very rare in Crohn's disease. I had more upper GI involvement. So there was a lot of nausea and throwing up when I was a kid. And it wasn't really classic nausea. It was more so like I would be eating and there was no warning. Like I would just suddenly like Mm. throw up, which like caused a couple of embarrassing situations because I was like never able to really get to the bathroom in time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had 
also a good amount of fevers and loss of appetite. So I lost a good amount of weight when I was a kid. Those were the main symptoms and of course, abdominal pain. But I think really it was the the nausea and the throwing up that was most prevalent for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that must have been really upsetting uh, and difficult to deal with. And then also a little bit different than what we think of usually with Crohn's disease. So when they started looking to diagnose you, like, how, do you remember how they went about that? Because they're probably looking in your throat, right? Yeah. So I got a double colonoscopy endoscopy, I'm pretty sure. And that was okay. the confirmation of diagnosis. I think before that, they did a few other tests. They started with an ultrasound, which I remember, which I've, I don't know what they, I guess they were looking for. Actually, I have no idea what they were looking for. Um, And then (laughs) I think I went just straight to a colonoscopy. Pretty much everyone knew what I had. My pediatrician knew. I'm sure my mom knew. And I'm sure the gastroenterologist knew at that point. But Mm -hmm. it was just a matter of confirmation. Right, right. Sure. And you think they knew because I also know because you let me know when we were coming up with the content for this episode, that IBD does run in your family, which most people don't have a family history of IBD. So which of your family members have IBD? And then how is that? Is yours different than theirs? My mother has IBD. She was diagnosed at the same exact age I was at 11. So that was, again, you know, one more factor that they were pretty sure what I had. Not that everyone's diagnosed Mm -hmm. at the same time, but just the coincidence of that. And then her father also had IBD, but I wasn't able to meet him because he passed away before I was born. And later on, we also Mm -hmm. found out that his uncle, so my mother's great uncle, also had IBD, Mm -hmm. um, which must have been right around when IBD was discovered. So I am a fourth generation IBD patient, which is slightly unique, not a label that I'm super proud of, but uh, it is what it is. And clearly there is some genetic component in my family. So my mother's disease has varied from mine, but it's hard to tell if that is just on the disease basis or just because treatments have drastically changed so much over the course of her lifespan that it's hard to really know which avenue the disease would have gone down had she had access to biologics and didn't have so many surgeries. It's really hard to tell. Mm -hmm. And I think it'd be impossible to compare to the other generations. Um, I'm not really sure. But I mean, I don't think anyone had as much of an upper GI involvement as I have, but that's kind of more rare anyways. So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. You're 25, right? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So your mom is probably around my age. (laughs) So (laughs) we were diagnosed in what they call now the pre-biologic age. So yeah, very few treatments. And the treatments that we had were not going to get at the inflammation. So even if you could sort of tamp things down and go about your life, maybe it wasn't really hitting the IBD and handling it in a way that we have now. So I know I'm really grateful. I'm sure your mom is really grateful that you have access to uh, better drugs than she did. 
Uh, but what was that? What was that like for her taking you through this diagnosis process? How? What kind of feelings does she have about it? Because I was so young, I definitely was not concerned with how my parents were feeling. But we've talked about <laughs> it uh, later, later in my life, and mm-hmm. she. I know it was very devastating for her. I don't think she really. Mm-hmm let herself think or thought in general that she would also have a child with IBD. And so I think there was definitely a period of denialism, maybe a couple of months, but you have to face reality when you have a sick child. And she, I remember she described to me that after after my diagnosis, she would wake up and it just felt like a ton of bricks had hit her every morning upon realizing that I had IBD. Mm -hmm. So I think it's definitely difficult for her, for sure. But she's never let IBD stop her from doing things. The IBD community is very strong. Pretty much everyone does what they want to do still in their life. And so I think she has solace in that. And she knows all that she's overcome. So it's okay, but definitely difficult. Right, right. It also sounds like she was a really good role model for you for what it was like to live with chronic illness and to not let it get in the way of, you know, what you wanted to do with your life. Definitely. Um, She always said, you know, you can, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. You don't let it stop you form relationships. You don't let it stop you. Do what you want at work. Of course, in reality, it can be a lot harder to do certain things. And there are a few things that I've steered away from in my life that I thought Mm -hmm. I probably couldn't do. But if I wanted to do them bad enough, I know I could have. I guess an example of that is throughout college, I never really considered studying abroad because I knew it would be so difficult to get my biologics out of the country that I completely never even considered it. Like it never even crossed my mind. It wasn't something Mm. that I absolutely had to do, want to do. And in that case, I think I would have done it. I would have figured it out. And I had friends that did it. But there are certain things in my life that I analyze now where I think I I just wrote them off from the beginning because of it. But I know that I'm capable of doing anything that I want if I want it bad enough. So college, you just finished with grad school. You went to the University of Michigan for both undergrad and grad? Yes. Okay. So accommodations at school. Now, when I went to college, by the way, I went to Michigan State University. So (laughs) for people who uh, haven't grown up in Michigan, uh, there are rivals schools, which is a lot of fun. It didn't even occur to me to ask you uh, were able to get some accommodations. So I'm interested to know how you went about that and how you began the process, if you got what you needed. And then I'm also wondering if the idea of accommodations played into your choice of school at all. When I was accepted to the University of Michigan and I knew I would attend there senior year of high school, I took it upon myself to switch from a pediatric gastroenterologist from my hometown to 
an adult gastroenterologist at the University of Michigan. And she was quite involved um, in a lot of patient connection. And so she was the one who suggested to me, I'm pretty sure that I could look into accommodations and she filled out the form, which is sent to the SSD office or student or services for students with disability. And from there, they met with me and a representative discussed what accommodations may be appropriate for me. And it it was a back and forth, which was very nice. And I really mm-hmm. hadn't had much accommodations in high school. I was completely healthy throughout high school. So there was really never a need. So I wasn't even really sure what I should ask for. But I ended up mm-hmm. settling on two main things. The first, which I took most advantage of, was taking my exams in a separate room that had an access to a bathroom. A lot of the large lecture hall classes did not have access to a bathroom during exams just because of, I don't know how they managed to organize 300 people plus. Um, So that wasn't going to work for me. And I really liked taking my exams in another room. I almost never used the bathroom option, but it was a type of insurance for me. So I knew that if I got sick on a late notice that I would have that set in place. And so that made me feel really good. And what they would do is if I went to the bathroom, they would stop the clock and then they would restart it when I came back. So I didn't have extra time, but I had that insurance if I were to need to go to the bathroom a few times that uh, I could still finish my exam at the same amount of time as anyone else. So that was the first major thing. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing was supposed to be a flexible attendance or assignment policy, mm-hmm. which I never ended up using, which was more so on me because I was very much the highly achieving perfectionist type in college. And I would just power through it. Even when I was really sick, I would show up and I would submit my exams and assignments on time, which I don't recommend. There was a time senior year that I was really sick through finals, but I just wanted to get them over with. So I took my last final exam and then walked myself to the emergency room. So Mm. I'm glad I had the accommodations in place, but it's interesting how a lot of times it takes you growing up to realize that you should have used those accommodations. So I still recommend people get them and have them in case they need to use them and to do so freshman year, because a lot of times it takes several months to put those in place, have your doctor fill out the forms. And I'm sure it's different at different schools. So if you're doing that while you're sick, it's really not a great process. So definitely do that at the beginning. So all in all, I felt like I had the accommodations I needed, Mm -hmm. but I was the one who didn't use them appropriately a lot of the time. So that's (laughs) on me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of difficult. You'll have to come around to it mentally, I think, as well. It's a huge hurdle to do that in the first place, to admit that you're different than your peers and that you might need a little extra help. And all right, it's in place, but then it's on you to then come around like to it again, like on that day and say, "Ah, you know, maybe I really should stay home and rest today and not try to push myself through an exam. Like that's really difficult. Yeah. And I think that's the part, like just a part of college in general is you, there's a lot of growth 
period. And for the first time, your parents aren't there telling you like, you need to stay home or you need to go to school. And so it was on me. And because I tended to be in the opposite direction that I was going to school, no matter what, that's just how it manifested in the end. But there definitely is some psychological component to it for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although I would say that's probably pretty typical of people with IBD is just to push through and just to keep going. <laughs> so yeah. Maybe we can all take a lesson to, to slow down a little bit more. And if we have accommodations in place, maybe we should use them. Um, so were you aware that the University of Michigan has some of the best IBD specialists in the world there before you went to school there? No, I I definitely did not. Um, I always wanted to go to the University of Michigan and it just, I lucked out. Okay. But I always wanted to go to a bigger school. And so probably even if I ended up choosing a different school, whether it was U of M or any other large school, a lot of them are paired with academic centers that have mm-hmm. pretty decent IBD specialists. So that worked out in the end. Yeah, yeah. And also at U of M, there's a great student group um, there, which, you know, I've come to their events as well, the Crohn's and Colitis Student Initiative. But you were obviously involved with them for several years. So how did you first learn about the group? And what was that experience like having a group like that on campus for you? So I actually stumbled upon it by chance. I was going through the hundreds of student organizations online that they list, and I stumbled upon the Crohn's and Colitis Student Initiative, and I got super excited about it. And there's a festival at the beginning of the year where every organization gets the opportunity to set up a little booth and then usually just freshmen, but sometimes older students can walk through and sign up for student orgs. So I sought out the CCSI booth and I went there and I introduced myself and I said, you know, I have Crohn's and I'm really interested in joining your group. And from that moment on to when I graduated graduate school, which was over the course of seven years with COVID, that Mm -hmm. I was heavily involved in this group and it wasn't something for me that I really thought I needed. I was more just excited about it in general, but because I had a mom with Crohn's, it wasn't my first time meeting people with Crohn's. It really wasn't about that for Mm -hmm. me, but it was the first time that I was surrounded by a group of people with Crohn's and also all people my age. And I think that was a really big factor for me that I didn't know I needed going in. But especially when I was pretty sick in the later years of college, it was a lot of support for me and just a great educational resource because there were a lot of people that were in our group chats. And usually the meetings were smaller, more intimate. But if anyone had a question, there's always somebody in the group that had gone through it, had tried that medication, had heard of that doctor. And so it was a great resource and just a really great connection piece automatically when I would meet someone there. It was kind of like you would be friends. And so I'm still really good friends with a few of the people from CCSI that I keep up with. I still see some people have 
graduated four years ago and I still talk to them. Um, I went to my friend's Mm -hmm. wedding from CCSI last summer and it was also a great place to learn more about the research going on because U of M is really a hub of some of that research. We would have different speakers talk. We would have mm-hmm. dietitians. We would have GI psychologists. We had professors that would study pain and happiness, not necessarily even related to IBD, but kind of tangentially related to IBD. And so I learned a lot about that and in a really comfortable setting. Um, we would go to fundraisers together, take steps. We did a lot of great things. And we would have one to two doctors show up at every meeting too. So we could ask questions and at a lot of academic centers, definitely U of M, the wait to get information from your doctor can sometimes be frustrating. So to have that resource there to ask a doctor a quick question instead of calling the office or going in the patient portal was really great and especially great during COVID when people had so many questions about vaccines and it was impossible to get that information anywhere else besides maybe a webinar that CCFA put on. So it was overall a really great experience and I had the opportunity to be president and to be a graduate student advisor and to also meet people who were a couple of years younger than me. And that was also a really great experience too. Mm-hmm. Keeping a student organization going, it really does sound like a lot of work on top of everything else that you're already doing. What would you say to people who want are thinking maybe they don't want to volunteer for such an organization? Or what would you say to anyone who doesn't have access to something like that and, and they think that they might want to start it at their school? Do you have any advice? Yeah. So the first thing is I know CCFA has some online support groups, so you should have access to that support in a bunch of different platforms online. I think they have a like power of two program, so you can just reach out with one person. There's groups where you can go on Facebook and discuss those things that are usually unmoderated, but then I think they're also more moderated groups. So no matter mm-hmm. what setting you want. I'm sure there's something out there. For starting it at your school, I think it can be difficult. And I think an extra barrier that CCSI has that other student groups don't have is not everyone is ready to talk about their IBD mm-hmm. or identify themselves with IBD. And so it was pretty hard to get members. And a lot of other schools in Michigan used to have pretty thriving Um, Crohn's and colitis student groups. Michigan State had one. I think Grand Valley had one. And it's hard to keep them up because even if you have Mm -hmm. one or two dedicated members, which is really all it takes, once they graduate, you know, the nature is like you have to have someone else coming in to keep it up. And so they very easy fizzle out. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is definitely a barrier. But I would say to just try and do your best and at a school with even a thousand people, right? There are people there with IBD. There are so many of us. So there's definitely people there, whether or not they're willing to join is another story, but I would definitely encourage people to try because it has really been a huge source of support in my life and was one of the reasons that I chose U of M again for grad school, especially just with COVID and feeling like an extra need for support and also kind of another layer 
of being ostracized with the pandemic of having being a young person that has to be careful when a lot of other people don't understand that. So I definitely encourage people to reach out to maybe a doctor that could be partnered with the university or just in the area and see if they're willing to sponsor. Because I know it's pretty valuable for the doctors that have been involved too, to really get more of that patient component that they get to know us without being in the confines of one hour, you know, twice a year or such. Mm -hmm. Right. I also think too, maybe there's a lesson here for administration staff at universities in how they think about their students who are coming with disabilities and that maybe providing a little different or extra support for these kinds of groups might be helpful because you were making a decision to stay and go to grad school because you had that great social support and maybe it would have been different, you know, had you not had that. Yeah, actually, when I was interviewing for other graduate schools, they often would have, you know, older grad students come and take you around tours. And one of them had looked me up on Facebook, saw that I had IBD and they also had IBD and their twin also had IBD. And they were like, you need to come here. We need to start an organization here. Like you can help us. And Justin, (laughs) I I mean, I was there for like two days and this all unraveled. So I I think there are a lot of people excited about this and they want to start at their own school and they just don't know how or don't feel like they have the support. But a single person can do it. You just start by, you can try to reach out to your disability office and try to advertise on their website or their email list. I think that's a great place to start. We would hang up little posters in bathroom stalls um, for to advertise <laughs> our, <laughs> our uh, organization. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. where you would find someone. So there's a lot of different avenues you can you can go down. But yeah, it is funny how you you go other places and people find you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a little creativity goes a long way. I want to move it along to your field of study and what you've been doing with your time while in grad school, because you've had a little bit of experience in being a clinical researcher now and also some doing some work in the IBD space. So why don't you tell me a bit about the work that you have been doing while you were at U of M and then, you know, how you got started with it, really? The disclaimer is that I was never somebody that wanted to research an IBD. I've been very interested (laughs) in uh, biomedical research and disease-based research, but never IBD because I really didn't want it to encompass the totality of my life. And Mm -hmm. so I reached out to an infectious disease doctor about doing clinical research with him during my master's degree. And we had decided on a particular project for the following year. It was based on C. difficile infection, which is a gastrointestinal infection. And when I came back in the fall, 
he said, we can keep the project the way it is, but I want to study this in IBD patients because a gastroenterology fellow and resident approached him over the summer and wanted to join the project. So to make it more relevant for them, he decided he would put an IBD twist on it. And he didn't mm-hmm. know that I had IBD at the time. I'm not sure if he remembered it or not. But Mm -hmm. I was basically pushed into this IBD project, which I never would have picked (laughs) off the bat. But it ended up being a a nice experience. And I think that was because I was healthy and symptom-free during this research project. I don't think it would have been as positive Mm -hmm. had I been dealing with IBD on a moment-by-moment basis. But because I could separate that and it wasn't such a big part of my personal life at the time, it ended up being pretty positive. So the project was a computational modeling project that sought to identify factors that contribute to IBD flare in patients that are tested for CDI or C. difficile infection. Mm -hmm. So to give a little background, um, CDI has a lot of symptoms that overlap with IBD flare, diarrhea, intestinal inflammation, fever, pain. And so it's very hard to distinguish between these these two disease states in IBD patients. And it's important because you want to treat the patient accordingly. And on top of that, IBD patients have higher rates of getting CDI and also asymptomatically carrying the bacteria. So Mm-hmm. us, these patients, are at higher risk of these infections, and we don't really have a great way to distinguish between the infection and flare, on top of the fact that the infection can cause a flare. So I was doing computational work to kind of look at how we could start to begin to distinguish between these two disease states. And it was very different than what I had been doing, because up until the summer before this project, I was really doing laboratory-based research and I had more control over what types of projects I was studying. So it was never even slightly in the realm of IBD, but um, this clinical research was pretty much a new thing and is more close to what I want to go into in the future. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there might be a tendency for people to think that because you're living with a condition that you'd be more interested in studying it? (laughs) Definitely. I have um, a good amount of friends in CCSI who are going to med school to uh, become gastroenterologists or uh, pediatricians that can help, you know, pass off kids to be diagnosed for IBD. And I think there's definitely a huge um, interest in patients to study their own illness. I just always went the other way. Um, You know, it it was part of my personal life, my family life. A lot of my friends had had at that point. There was just, there was just no way that I needed more IBD in my life. Um, But I think (laughs) I, I was, I was definitely more passionate about my work. I've always wanted to go into drug development or, um, really just anything related to pharmaceuticals. And that definitely derived from being dependent on medications to feel well and realizing the importance of 
how medications can really change so many people's lives um, and quality of life too. So it all kind of comes together. I just didn't want specifically IBD to be the topic of my research, but it happened and it was still a good experience. So that was good. Good, good. Well, I'm glad it worked out in the end. And the C. difficile infections, I mean, so difficult for anyone, but then as you said, for people with IBD, it can really lead to some bad outcomes. So it's a great area of study and something that we need to know more about. That is definitely something that is quite different than when I was diagnosed to now is that it's more recognized and that a lot of times when you are starting to have your symptoms come back and maybe you're having a flare-up, one of the first things they might do is test you for a C. diff infection. And that was something that they that they didn't do before. So it's really important right. that people get tested for it. And then if you live with an IBD, that you uh, get it diagnosed and get it treated, especially right away. Although I'm told, I've never had a C. diff infection. I'm told that when you have it, you pretty, you pretty much know. It's kind of like having uh, an intestinal blockage. Like when you have it, like you know you have it. There's not really like a lot of question. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear it's pretty bad. Yeah, definitely and can take time to clear up. So the research is important, but you're thinking that you might go in a slightly different direction. So what do you think you'll do next professionally or what are you looking at? I'm applying to jobs now, uh, mainly in the pharmaceutical industry and clinical affairs. So either clinical research or there are lots of different positions that help out with aspects of clinical trials for drugs in development or drugs that have already been approved, but they want to approve it for new indications or new formulations, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, this past summer, interned at a company in clinical development, and I really liked that. So Hopefully something having to do with organizing clinical trial data or managing the clinical trial itself. But um, I guess in that sense, I do not have choice of what drug I get put on probably. So it could end up <laughs> in the IBD space again because it is such a uh, big field. It's possible that my uh, path with IBD research is not at its end, but we'll see. Yeah, that's it's probably likely that it will come up again in your professional career, I'll just say, especially for something like a secondary indication for a drug that's already been approved. So you're so you're open to the idea. You're not saying no to being in the gastroenterology space. I'm not saying no, but you know, <laughs> I may take like a vial off the counter for myself. No, I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> but uh yeah, well, I, you know, I can't be completely blocked off to that idea because it is out of my control yeah. to some extent. And I think it would be exciting in some realms. And also just in in the positive sense, I am so happy every time I see something coming through the pipeline that in a sense, it would be an honor to work on one of those drugs. And if I was on, it would be pretty cool that I had a part in the process of that, of taking something that I worked on. So mm -hmm. I'm not completely turned off to the idea, but yeah, you're right. It's probably likely to happen if I'm in the field in the long term. 
Yeah. And I get the idea of the separation. I mean, in my own life, you know, I deal with that. I specialize in writing about inflammatory bowel disease and then other digestive diseases as well. I do work in other space too, but it can be sometimes it's just all IBD all day. So it is nice to sometimes do something that's a little bit different, I guess is what I'll say about that. <laughs> Let me ask you this though. What would be your ideal area of study? What would be something that if you were to get a grant, and I'm not saying like, I don't have any money, like I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I could give you a grant. But if you had access to grant money, is there something in particular that you would like to study and and look into? Yeah, so I my master's degree is in immunology and I've always found immunotherapy super super interesting. So I would love to work on, you know, something tangentially related to IBD. So really any other autoimmune disease I've found interesting. Um also, I've done a good amount of oncology research, which, you know, highly benefits from immunotherapy. So I think anything immunology related, which is most things these days would be super interesting, but I have kind of a large range of scientific interests. So there's nothing that I've really been always dying to look at. I kind of, whatever is up and coming, I'm pretty jazzed about usually. Like, I think it's super cool. So yeah, I think something immunology related, but it doesn't have to be anything super specific. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge field and there's a lot of work going on in it, which is wonderful to see as a person that lives with an immune-mediated condition. It's like, that's great that it's, be, it's being focused on now. So, um, and, it's, and it's also wonderful to see young folks like yourself go into the field. Whether or not you work on IBD projects, it's, I think it's still, you never know how something that you're working on can impact in a, in a way that you never even thought that it would. So it's just moving that, moving immunology studies forward, just, you know, in any kind of a way, I think is really great. So, so I want to ask you though, from one Michigan girl to another Michigan girl, <laughs> I grew up not too far from you. Uh, you grew up in West Bloomfield. I grew up in and around Mount Clemens, although now I live in Connecticut. What, so when I go back and I visit my family. I have, there's a couple of things that are on my list. There's some foods that I can't get here in Connecticut that when I go back to Michigan, they're on my list. What would be your foods that you would like to have from Michigan if you were living somewhere else? I have a really easy answer for you. Um, my favorite nice. restaurant is Buddy's Pizza. I think Detroit pizza is better than all other pizza. And everyone hates on me for having such an opinion, but I don't care. Um, so I would, I would bring Buddy's Pizza everywhere. And I found out that I think you can have it shipped like half-baked to around the country. And I will definitely be taking advantage of that. So that's my number one answer. But everyone's like, oh, I love New York pizza. How do you not like New York pizza? And I'm like, no, Buddy's is so much better. And honestly, it's like heresy that you would say such a thing being from Michigan, but <laughs> <laughs> that is heresy. Okay. So I, you know, as I said, I grew up in Michigan and, uh, but I met my husband online 
And the first time, so we had like a long distance thing going for a while. So I flew one time when I was, I think I was 22. So I flew from Detroit to New York City because he lived on Long Island to to meet him. And, you know, we were just trying to figure out whether or not this was something we were going to continue to pursue because long distance isn't easy. And one of the places that he took me to was his favorite pizza place. (laughs) And they served New York pizza. And I was just, no, no, no. (laughs) I wanted my Detroit pizza. And this was the early 90s. I didn't even really understand. Okay, I knew what Chicago style was because I'd been to Chicago. But I didn't understand that there was different pizza in different places. And then Connecticut has their own pizza situation going on, Hmm. by the way. So it is very wild. I am not a fan of New York pizza. I will take some Detroit pizza any day. And whenever it is on a menu that is here in New England or in New York, I will totally get it because it's the best pizza. And I don't really care. I'm on your side on this. Sorry. I really am. (laughs) No, I have the same argument um, with my boyfriend. I tell him that if I wanted to put sauce and cheese on a wheat thin, I would, but I prefer uh, (laughs) Detroit style pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then don't forget the grease. Right. You know, the New York pizza, like that was what bothered me was the greasiness of it. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's fine. Like, it's okay, but (laughs) it's not what I want. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, there is something very special about growing up in southeastern Michigan, and it speaks directly to our pizza preferences. (laughs) By the way, last time I was in Michigan, I was there. I was at U of M for the annual event um, that's thrown. That's for uh, Crohn's and Colitis patients. And one of the things that I did before I drove back to the airport, I think I was there for like 36 hours. One of the things that I did was stop and get some pizza. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe next year. I hope to speak again. We can link up and we can suggest that Buddy's Pizza should be the lunch event afterwards. <laughs> you know what? If look, if somebody's going to invite me to come and be a speaker at an event in Michigan and then they promise me some Detroit pizza, like that's just you know, I'm going to do it. Like the answer right. is just going to be yes. Let me just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with me and being on about IBD. I'm really grateful to have your story and have all this information since you've already lived through going through college, having accommodations, maybe not using them to your advantage as much as you should have. And so other people can learn from your experience. And so I really appreciate you talking to me today, Sari. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, super listener. Thanks to Sari Grossman for sharing her journey and her experience in accommodations while in undergrad and graduate school. Her points about campus support groups are incredibly valid. Motivated students are important to maintaining volunteer organizations. But I would also encourage people who are on staff at colleges and universities to look at the example set by the Crohn's and Colitis Student Initiative at the University of Michigan and consider how they can support such a group on their own campus. And I say that as a graduate of Michigan State University. Don't worry, it only hurt a little. 
links to a written transcript, everyone's social media handles, and more information on the topics we discussed is in the show notes and on my episode 131 page on aboutibd.com. You can follow me, Amber Tresca, across all social media as About IBD. Thanks for listening. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD. About IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Mix and sound design is by Mac Cooney. Theme music is from Cooney Studio. Oh, 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 oh,